Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 1. In a moment, we'll be reading the entirety of Revelation, chapter 6. Welcome this morning to God's house. We are here for the explicit purpose of worshiping God. We're turning our attention vertical, considering what God has for us by His Word and the power of His Word to encourage us, strengthen us, and to help us to endure during troubled times. Perhaps you might join me in prayer to that end now. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please encourage us and strengthen us and help us to endure by your word in these troubled times. Our forefathers and mothers are no stranger to troubled times, Lord, we know. But what we have to compare it with is simply what we're enduring now. So grant us the grace and peace that we need to endure. Grant us the fortitude of, that comes with perspective. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I hate getting shots. Really, I always have. My parents are here today. They could tell you. I remember when I was a little boy not liking those needles getting stuck in my arm. Am I the only person that doesn't like getting shots? Nope. There's at least five of us. Thank you. Therapy for me. My parents and the doc had a more broad perspective than I did about the need for those shots. A shot, while painful in the moment, was necessary for the greater good. It would help prevent a worse, a worse still outcome, a worse consequence. Uh, all metaphors break down, and this one does too. But indulge them, the metaphor to think of a shot as having certain similarities with the suffering of the saints. Our frustrations and our sufferings, insofar as they aren't being induced by our own persistence in sin, they're kind of like shots necessary to bring about greater good in the economy of God. God is like a better doctor. as Jesus is the great physician. And He helps us along. And He holds our hand until we finally come to the realization that... Our suffering occurs according to the sovereignty of God and in the unfolding plan of God. God is bringing about a greater good, even when in the unfolding of human history, evil people do evil things to God's people. Our testimony goes forth anyway, and sometimes in spite of and even because of the suffering of the saints. That is not only a bitter pill, but it's a stinging shot for the believer. And today, what we see in our text is a picture of the buildup in human history, unfolding as God has written on the scroll, told with the unfolding of six of the seven seals that we'll read about today. We see this picture through the conquest by our enemies that seem to abound. We see it through the cry of the martyrs crying out, from heaven for the relenting of the punishment against the believers on earth. We see also the second coming of Christ. And in this picture, this picture from Revelation that's more cyclical than sequential, we see a pattern of suffering because those dwelling on earth, or as Revelation calls it again again, 
those earth dwellers continue in their unrighteous rebellion against God. And so in this picture, in Revelation chapter 6, we will see places where we can find encouragement and help with endurance because that's what the Lord promises to do for His people by His Word through the Scriptures as we too seek to bear witness to the Word as Christ is the Word and the witness. So listen for the conquests in verses 1 through 8 as we read God's Word. Listen for the cry in verses 9 through 11. And listen for the coming in verses 12 through 17. I gleaned from Pastor John Miller in Pennsylvania for several insights in this sermon. And I appreciated his sermons from this part of Revelation very much. Listen to the Word of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 and following. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Verse 5, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. In his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. You might think of it as a green horse. Pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So there in those first eight verses... We see the conquest, the enemies of God, even allowed by God for a more broad purpose. Now verses 9 through 11, this, this cry from the martyrs, this righteous cry. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been, had been killed. So we hear the cry of the martyrs. And then thirdly, to see the, the scope and sequence of this sermon, we see the second coming of Christ articulated in verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us 
and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And that word who, it's a question, it's an interrogative. Who can stand on the day of the Lord? I want you to look briefly again at verse 2 to catch the overview and see the word conquer. Know about the centuries of conquest seemingly by the enemies of God. I want you to look at verse 10, and I want you to see they cried. I want you to see in that section how the martyrs cry out for God to, God to vindicate His name, for God to finish what's been started. And they pray that way as we pray. And then I want you to see in verse 17, in that last section that we're looking at today, I want you to see the word come. The great day of the wrath has come. I want you to understand the second coming of Christ is not just simply confessionally affirmed by us. It is a biblical factoid. Christ is coming again, and He will reign. And you need the endurance that comes from the encouragement of the saints reading the Scripture together today to catch that vision. Now, firstly, let us look at the conquests that seem to come generationally, perennially, every century, by the enemies of God. It seems like they're constantly conquering. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Remember, there had been a crisis. John, in this vision of heaven, was trying to figure out who could open the scroll, who had the credentials, who had the capacity Who had been given the call to open the scroll? You might remember John wept in this throne room vision because he couldn't figure out who could open the scroll. And then an elder came along and encouraged him and said, Oh, but there is one. And this lamb is able to open the scroll. And so now in in chapter 6, verse 1, he watches, he onlooks, and he shares this vision with us for our benefit in God's providence. And he says, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder. Again, metaphor, like or as, thunder, a simile or a metaphor, using metaphoric language. Come, it's the Greek word erkamai. It could also mean go. Go and come. Come and go. It's a command. It's an imperative. Come. It's used each time to describe these, these horsemen, or what some call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And he says, Come. And John looked, and behold, a white horse. Remember, there's four different colors here describing four different things. And its rider had a bow, no arrow apparently, but a bow, and a crown was given to him, as if he conquered without firing a shot or releasing an arrow. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now let's pause for a moment within this first sub-point, within this first point, looking at the conquest by the enemies of God. This is sometimes thought to be on the white horse, Christ Himself. It's thought to be the Lamb. And while that is a view held by many faithful scholars, I'm not going to take that position today. I see differences between this writer in chapter 6 and the writer in chapter 19. Here we have a victor's wreath, not many diadems like chapter 19. He has a bow like the Parthian fighters against the Romans. He has a bow but no arrow. In chapter 19, we have a sword coming out of his mouth. In chapter 6, one who is sent by the Lamb. While in chapter 19, the Lamb himself. These four horsemen go together. Christ's first horseman is sent to do God's work, but in a way that would not be how we would probably lay it out if we were painting the picture. 
It's almost like, in a sense, judo. People go on doing what they're doing, and in spite of the fact that they're doing what they're doing to try to harm the cause of the Lamb, they can't help but help the cause of the Lamb because God is bringing all things to a climactic conclusion. And we cannot get enough of the encouragement that comes from realizing God is bringing everything to a climactic conclusion. Our boredom with that factoid is a result of our short-sightedness and not a result of our lack of need to hear it in community on the Lord's Day with God's people. Everything is going to a climactic point because of our sovereign King, holy and true and righteous and just. That's why it's going there. We need to hear that, especially when the events of our time seem tenuous, especially when the events of our time seem to lack control. Revelation 6 is a referendum on our thinking that way. As out of control as verses 1 through 8 seem to swirl toward making us think. We're going to see in Revelation 6 that the sovereign is never lacking sovereignty. He's always on the throne, and he will exec his plan of salvation for his people and of retribution against his enemies. The rider of the white horse here goes about conquering, but as Vern Poitras says, it's a bloodless conquest. It makes me think of the Old Testament prophet, peace, peace, they say, but there is no peace. It's like a false peace. It's alliances that won't stand. But nevertheless, it's a conquest, perhaps an atheistic conquest, an alliance of states that has happened less or maybe more throughout human history, where peoples from different Nations get along for a time, but there's nothing pure about it, and it doesn't last. Look at the second horse in verse 3. It's described as a red horse. Here again the word of the Lord. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse at the abject command of the Lamb. Come, go, do what I tell you to do, go. And out came another one. And its rider was then permitted to take peace from earth, doing what he was going to do anyway. Permitted to take peace from earth. So the peace that may have been former in this is no longer. And we see that a lot with the alliances on earth, don't we? Peace, peace, where there is no peace. We know that peace can only come from the God of peace. So it says in verse 4, people should then slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This is a, this is a conquest with blood. A red horse. A second seal open. And about 18 out of the last 20 centuries... There's been, they've been just marked by bloodshed and war. Not simply by the blood of the martyrs, but just, just fighting, just wars. People being killed because of power-hungry despots and nations that had alliances that didn't hold. Not all conquest is bloody, but this is a bloody conquest, this red horse And in the breaking of these seals, it seems as if the Lord Jesus is removing his restraints from human society, allowing us to go after our own passions. Since Adam, we're all depraved in our human condition. 
But that doesn't mean that we're all always as bad as we could possibly be. To the contrary, God has offered us a restraining grace to lesser or greater extents throughout the history of the age of the church. But it seems in this text and in considering our movement toward the climax of human history, that there will be times when restraint is lessened and human passions flare. We will have fights among us, and those, as James says, are not of God, because our passions are at war within us. Let us take care as the people of God not to be ushering in the breaking down of structures that God has allowed for the sake of restraining violence and the baser instinct of mankind. We do not want to be fools in that way. Indeed, it will happen, but we should not celebrate the times when human instinct, unaided by the illumination of the Spirit, leads humans to human leads their passions to be inflamed and leads them in a Romans one sense to be more and more given to the way that they want to live anyway. We must remember as believers the condition of mankind and we must doubt the goodness of mankind because anything that comes that is good is a result of God, God's common grace or His special grace shown on believers. And we must doubt the ability of humans that are not under the banner of Christ to form coalitions of goodwill and bring peace on earth. This is not the plan of salvation. It is a counterfeit salvation. Just as I would say, this is not the Messiah coming in on a white horse. This is a counterfeit Messiah. Just as Revelation has counterfeit trinity, counterfeits claiming to be able to do what only God can do, seemingly running amok and creating chaos in this cosmos, in this created order. This is all a result of human sin, and especially human sin enlivened to its fuller extent. Romans 1 says that we can be given, or humanity, rather not us, not the people of God, but humanity without the illumination of the Spirit can be given to their sinful desires, their lusts, and they can go on and on into it. We can't be the people that are caught off guard by the sinfulness of sin and the brokenness of humanity. We need not be the people that are surprised when restraining grace is lessened and when infrastructures that are designed to restrain humans' baser instinct fall apart, we cannot then turn and have some kind of an existential faith crisis about where things are going. That's the time when the world needs to hear from us messages of faith and strength about our sovereign God. That's the time when the unbelievers, like the centurion at the foot of a cross, witnesses this great atrocity and the way that we conduct ourselves in the midst of being marginalized and maligned, and they look at us and they consider the plan of salvation. And our words carry weight, rather, because of our witness. Then there's a black horse, as... 
as restraining grace is lifted and we're allowed to live within our baser instincts, we see it says in verse 5, open a third seal. And I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. This is a description of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. It is a description of rampant inflation, 8 to 12 times, as G.K. Beale notes. It is a description of a day's wage being earned but not being able to provide for a family. It's just enough money to afford food for one person and not even the better kind of food. All the while, the elements associated with luxury in the Middle East, oil and wine, are flowing freely with the richest of the rich. This black horse is describing a disparity from between the rich and poor that squelches any sense of a middle class. And what we see here, indeed, is the, the judgment of God being brought to bear on human society as His common restraining grace is just gently lifted. I don't think we pause to realize what a grace it is to live with the liberties inculcated into our Constitution that we have. I don't think we stop often enough to realize how uncommon it is. I don't think we stop often enough to realize how unowed to us it is. We ought not usher in the destruction of those liberties. In fact, we ought to argue to the contrary because it's good for human flourishing for people to be free. But we all ought also not be caught off guard when evil acts evilly. We ought not be the people that lack the shrewdness that Jesus said needed to accompany our deportment in being as innocent as a dove. We are to be both as innocent as a dove and as shrewd as a serpent if we're to follow the way that he led the apostles to go about sharing this gospel. The black horse describes the times when inflation is rampant, you can hardly feed your family, and the poorest of the poor are preyed upon by the richest of the rich. And then there's a green horse. It is indeed like the Tower of Siloam. It's that which falls on us all. Pestilence. Disease. Sickness. And really, a culmination of all the ills of the other seals being broken afore. Of what was ushered in with the other colored horses, white, red, and black. Here is this green horse, or this pale horse, using the Greek word that would signify green. A sickly color, a color of death, or a corpse. Look at verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was named Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence or sickness, and with wild beasts of the earth. Surely that had a relevant meaning to the, 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 Roman, the Roman feeding of the people to the beasts for sheer entertainment. But also you just have mountain lions and Dangerous element, dangerous animals all throughout the, the earth. 
there is a time when civilization turns in on itself, implodes, and when there's little protection from the wild dogs and the jackals, it's sort of like lamentations when we read it. The lifting of God's hand of blessing and protection, and this is a pale horse. I would urge you to read the Olivet Discourse recorded in the Gospels. Luke 21 is helpful. There are discontinuities, but there are also continuities with what's going on in Revelation 6. I would particularly urge you to read the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Zechariah 1 and 6, in light of keeping these four horsemen together. Consider the language is almost twinned between Zechariah and Revelation 6, 1 to 8, for this interpretation of the breaking of these seals, these first four seals. All four of these horsemen of the apocalypse come together in this fourth horseman, these judgments being sent on earth, but not all at once. It's a gradual thing, phenomenon, and these limited judgments are occurring. We're going to see the greater judgment with the sixth seal in our third point of this sermon. But for now, let us move to the second point of our sermon. From the conquest of the enemies of God to the cry of the martyrs. We have the conquest by the enemies, and now secondly, we're going to have the cry of the martyrs. Look at verse 9. This comes from heaven now, with the fifth seal of seven. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Clearly conjuring up Levitical images of temple sacrifice, the worship of God in the Old Covenant. Consider this, the, the altar souls that had been slain for the word of God and witness. Imagine their bloodshed as pooling up and God keeping track of every drop. Do you know that there is not a single drop of blood shed by a martyr by which God does not take an account? Surely the God that knows the very numbers of hairs on your head, or the lack of hairs on your head for some of us, surely that God knows about the drops of blood of the martyrs. And if you're sitting here, you have not yet suffered to the point of the shedding of blood, at least not as a martyr. And so you might be tempted to think that this passage has no bearing for you, but yet it does. Because in your marginalization and your lack of getting a promotion because of the exercise of your faith, in your bearing witness to the Word, whatever it is that you go through is surely on the path to dying and meeting the Lord Jesus. Whether the end of your breaths ends in martyrdom or a death otherwise, you will meet Jesus just the same. And these martyrs speak a message on our behalf that all of us as believers can understand and grapple with. And here's how. Look again at verse 9 and following. I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, after verse 10, let us consider these are glorified saints. They're asking how long until the end. And they're not asking for themselves to get out of suffering. They're actually advocating for us. And look at the answer to this, verse 11. Then they were each given a robe, a white robe, 
and told to rest a little longer. Why are they to rest a little longer? It says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, should be complete. So what hasn't happened yet? We haven't seen the full extent of the martyrs. Are you familiar with the Nigerian martyrs just this past season of life? Do you subscribe to the voice of the martyrs? Look them up online. Do you read about and foster and nurture a knowledge so that you can have a heart for people that are facing martyrdom? Do you know the number's not complete yet because Christ has not returned? We must not be drunk on our own affluence. We must avail ourselves with the vast resources that we have to the plight of those in the world that do not have the liberties that we have and offer to serve in the ways that we can to try to lessen their plight until the number of brothers and sisters should be complete, the number that are killed as these former martyrs had been. What a statement from the sovereign king of the universe. What a statement. Think of the statement again. These martyrs cry out, O Lord, your attributes are holy and true. How long? Quoting the Psalter, how long, O Lord? A common refrain, how long, how long? And the answer given is, the time has not yet come with this fifth seal. It hasn't happened yet. We have to have a God-centered realism that acknowledges God's sovereignty over both the delightful and the despairing moments of our lives. Christ will bring all of human history to its final point. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot orchestrate it on your own. We are not Lone Ranger Christians in this regard. We need each other, and we need this, this word, to aid our witness and in our encouragement and in our endurance because the seeming, seemingly tumultuous nature, up and down nature of our world today would lead us to think that we have to fix it ourselves or worse still, that the sovereign is not sovereign. We cannot go there, can we? This text, as I've said already, is a referendum on that way of thinking. God's righteous wrath will be meted out in God's time. So why? How long, O oh Lord? Why? Why do you wait? I don't know every answer on why God allows injustice to continue, on why perpetrators for a time seem to go unpunished. I don't know every reason why, but I think I know one reason why, and that is because people get converted. People get saved. Is there anybody in this room that hasn't heard and responded to the gospel? How many of you have a testimony of a time when you hadn't received the gospel and you did evil things. How many of us have that testimony? You did things that justified your eternal damnation. That's us. That's every blood-bought child of God. 
So if you have a testimony of once was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see, could it be that the way that you conduct yourselves in the midst of your plight is the very means that God wants to use to convert I mentioned the centurion at the cross. Think about, surely this was the Son of God, he said. Think, think about Paul's conversion. Surely the stoning of Stephen had an impact on Paul, didn't it? These martyrs have the credibility to ask this question, and they are not, of course they're not, but, but it's point, it bears repeating, they are not told, pipe down, don't ask a question. They're answered. You're right, I'm going to vindicate my name. But the time hasn't come yet. Well, why? Perhaps because there is reason for us to share our gospel with others and see them converted. Friends, let us not fall victim to the kind of slumber that described Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane the night of Jesus' betrayal on the eve of His death, His killing. Let us not fall victim to that slumber. Awake in the time of your trial. Awake as the seals are opened. Awake as history comes to pass. Awake and share the gospel with people that don't have it yet. Or don't you understand that they won't go to heaven without it? Friends, they won't go to heaven without the gospel. You understand this, right? They will not go to heaven. There is no universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. You must receive the gospel. So, as Romans 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. We must take it. I'll tell you something else as a popular belief, part of people's worldview, if it doesn't come from God, doesn't come from His Word. Universalism doesn't come from the Word, but neither does annihilationism. Because what we're going to read about in our third point is people that wish they could just cease to exist, and they don't. They have to deal with the white-hot wrath of God, and they have to deal with it in perpetuity. So share the gospel with them now. Listen to verse 12 and following. This is our third and final point, the second coming of Christ. We've heard of the cry after we heard of the conquests that seem unending, and now we get to the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great quake, a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell on the earth, and the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of Him. Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. All these others have come and gone. But the great day of their wrath has come. Now, who can stand? Oh, what a great question, right? Let's answer that question in our third and final point today. Who can stand? 
on the day of the Lord. Only those hidden in Christ with God. Only those who have come out of hiding in the corner of Eden after their sin and repented of said sin and trusted in the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Whether you are an eight-year-old child or an 80-year-old senior or somewhere in between, hear my voice today. You will face the vicious decreating wrath of God articulated in this sixth seal, unendingly, lest you be hidden with Christ. You cannot hide from that one true face. You cannot hide from the vision of God and the climactic plan of His for the entire world. You can't hide. What's going on here is a description of the classes of people after a description of the decreation. I like what one pastor said. Alfred wrote, We may unhesitatingly set down as wrong all interpretations which view as the fulfillment of this passage any period except that of the, as the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. Mention is made of seven structures of creation, earth, sun, moon, stars, sky, mountains, and islands, and then seven classes of men, upper to lower, kings, great men, rich men, commanders, mighty men, slaves, and free men, free, slaves, and free men in order to symbolize the universality of these disasters. Whether it was freedmen or slaves that didn't follow the Lord, or whether it was rich men, powerful men, kings that didn't follow the Lord, all those outside of Christ will face His wrath. How long, O Lord, will the time hasn't come yet? Who can stand, O Lord, only those who are in Christ. James Hamilton was commenting on this text, and he said this is a text to help us prepare for martyrdom, should it be our lot. He said, how do you prepare for martyrdom? He said, soak yourself in the Bible. Cling to its promises. Live in the world the Bible describes. Not in line with the world that rebellious humans invent for themselves, but read the Bible like you might be martyred for it. Pray like you would if you knew they were going to kill you for it one day soon. Preach the gospel like you might be martyred for it. Cast your votes at church, for instance, when a congregation votes on whether or not to exclude the unrepentant from membership, like your life and your gospel preaching depended on it. Love your spouse like you would if you knew that they were coming for you tomorrow or even tonight. Hold your kids and teach them the faith like there is no tomorrow. And he goes on to say, There is only one shelter from the wrath of God on that day, the shelter of the cross of Jesus Christ. Only those who believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins, that he rose to conquer sin and death, only those who trust Jesus will be sheltered by Jesus from divine wrath on that coming day. The gospel is the leveler of humanity in the same way that God's wrath is. The gospel declares that only Christ can save and that nothing you bring makes you closer to God. Money doesn't put you closer. Power doesn't put you closer. Influence doesn't put you closer. Greatness doesn't put you closer. Freedom doesn't put you closer. Conquest in this life doesn't put you closer. The only thing that brings you to God is faith in Jesus Christ. End quote. We've read today about the conquests that happen by the enemies of God throughout history. 
We've read today about the cry of the martyrs. We've read about the second coming of Christ here in these six seals. And we'll soon see an interlude followed by the seventh seal. We'll hear about silence in heaven. Today we've seen this picture, this buildup in human history, unfolding as God has written on the scroll, told with the unfolding of these six of seven seals. And we'll see this picture, and we'll see this picture, and we'll see this picture as we see the cyclical nature of Revelation. We'll see the pattern of suffering because of earth dwellers' rebellion against God. We'll see this picture, and we will again and again find encouragement and endurance through the Scriptures as we gather together on the Lord's Day to hear them. I'd like to remind you of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Romans as he ended his letter. It's in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We have an obligation. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, we don't like to take our medicine. We don't like it. We don't like shots. We don't like what the Lord allows as we move toward that day. We can pray how long, O Lord, but we cannot demand an immediate, an immediate vindication in the name of God with his final wrathful judgment. We must pray for the state of unbelievers as a result of reading texts like this. We must pray for the state of unbelievers that they might be saved, that in times where wrath is deserved, as Habakkuk 3.2 says, that God might remember mercy on their wretched souls. And he will, he will, unbeliever, hear me today, he will, you are not too far gone. You think you've compounded sin on sin? It's a lie from the enemy, from the pit of hell, that you cannot be saved from whatever you've done. And today, in times of wrath, remember mercy. God is known to do so. You can avoid the pending doom by putting your faith in Christ today. And I pray that you would. I hope that you will. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve hell for that. But there is no journey that you've gone that is so far from Christ that you cannot Come back to Him. And I hope that you will today. Confess your sin. Trust the Lord. Walk with Him all the days of your life and dwell in His house forever. That is exactly what we're about. And believer, let me say a brief word to you before I conclude. Wake up from your slumber and understand your calling, even in a world that seems to be spiraling out of control. Awake from your spirit of complaint and stand ready to speak truth to power and to tell others what they don't see, what you see, like John, the revelator, saw. The pain that you suffer for what you profess now is part of your worship. It's part of offering yourself as a living sacrifice, not yet dead. And so far as we are able, let's be winsome about it and let's give glory to the Savior. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray.
God, grant us a few moments of silence to consider here how we might need to respond and live out this worthy word this week and in this season and in this life.